I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Mark. Today we will be in uh, Mark chapter 15. Let's see. Mark chapter 15, verses 42 to chapter 16, verse 8. So the last part of Mark there. All right. All right, for all those of you who have kids, grandkids, little nieces, little nephews, students, any contact with children, all right, at all, whatsoever, right? If you have any contact with children, uh, chances are pretty good that you've seen the new movie Encanto, right? Okay, Encanto, Encanto, whatever, it's a new Disney movie. Uh, and uh, chances are you've also probably heard about or heard the song, We Don't Talk About Bruno. There's no, we don't talk about Bruno. Um, uh, we listen to that one a lot. Um, right now it, it hasn't driven me crazy. I'm just really thankful that we've missed the frozen train. You know, we, we have, like people talking about getting driven crazy by the Let It Go song. Uh, and thankfully I've only heard that a handful of times. So uh, thankful for that. Uh, and I haven't seen any uh, angry Facebook posts or controversies surrounding Encanto, so I feel a little safe, uh, more safe talking about it. Uh, and I, I don't, I won't go into much detail about the movie, but here's the the big cheesy lesson of Encanto. All right, I know now you're going to go see it, and this is the big lesson that you need to learn. It's better to live in wholesome relationships with others than it is to have a really unique gift. That's, that's, that's it. It's, it's better to live in wholesome relationships with other people than it is to have like this really special gift. Okay? Now go watch it and it'll make sense. Yeah. Profound, right? For Disney. Uh, but there is also another Disney movie that has stirred up quite a little, uh, a bit of controversy. Uh, Turning Red. I don't know if you guys have seen the angry Facebook post or anything like that. We watched it. It's fine. No demon worship or anything like that. Sure, it's it's edgy, a little irreverent at times, but you know it is what it is. But its 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 message is actually the opposite of Encanto, and it is be true to yourself, no matter what anyone else says. So this little girl has a big red panda that she turns into, and that's her that's herself, and so she learns that she has to live with who she really is, and to celebrate that. Okay, and and whether you have watched Turning Red or not, all of you, all of us have to some degree, grown up with that kind of mentality, right? It's, it's all, we've all been infused with this rugged American individualism. All right? We may not express it in those same terms, but we all have some degree of an indiv- individualistic spirit. All right? that's, hey, that's fact. Right? If you want to debate that, uh, then, I, then don't, okay? Because that's true, all right? Uh, at the end of the day, these competing stories, Disney or not, end up defining the way that we live, the way that we see the world, the way that we interact with others, the way that we think the world should be. And that story, for Americans, whatever, is be true to yourself and find relationships that affirm who you want to be. And stories that that compete with that or challenge that, we reject those stories. Because that's not the overarching story that we're, we're fed from childhood. So what in the world has all of this got to do with Easter? Because 
we tell a story too. And no, we do not believe this story is made up. Uh, we believe the story not only competes and challenges with other stories of life, but it actually triumphs over those stories. We don't believe this is just one version of a story among many. We believe this is the story, capital S story. A guy named Brian Walsh wrote that if there is one thing that Christianity is all about, it is a grand story. In the face of the rejection of all grand stories, Christians have the audacity to proclaim week after week the liberating story of God's redemption of all creation. It is, we insist, the one story that actually delivers on what it promises. And this Easter Sunday, I want to share that story and what it promises. These are promises that we're all invited to share and promises that we're invited to hope in. And it is this story that actually delivers on these promises. So let's read together Mark chapter 15. Uh, It'll be on the screen as well. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. In summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. I I believe Mark skillfully weaves three promises of the resurrection into this section. And the first promise of the resurrection is the end of oppression. End of oppression. And in this first part of the passage, we're introduced to this guy named Joseph, right? And he's from this place called Arimathea, and he and he takes the body of Jesus to bury him. Pretty routine stuff, but but Mark adds this interesting detail about Joseph that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now, this little section, if if you were to go read uh, Matthew in, in this same section, or, or or Luke, or even John, it's not that different. But but each gospel writer adds his own flavor. Okay, and 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 um, if you're just picking up the Bible and reading this, this little phrase just wouldn't mean much, except for Mark, this phrase is loaded with meaning. 
Mark, the, the Gospel of Mark book, has an incredible focus on the kingdom of God. Jesus' first recorded words in, occur in chapter 1 where he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All right, that's Jesus' re- first recorded words. That's his, the message of his ministry. Right, Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus goes on to demonstrate a massive amount of authority. So there's no sickness he cannot heal. Like he just heals colds and um, flus and paralyzed people. I mean, it's genuinely insane that he can cure a paralyzed person, right, with a word. All right? So he does there. There's no sickness he cannot heal, nor a demon he cannot overpower. So it's not just like human stuff that he's dealing with. It's, it's demonic spiritual stuff. He, he forgives sins. He shows his authority by forgiving sins. And he can even subdue nature. Now, the common reaction is to kind of treat these miracles like we treat Superman. Like, just to be like, whoa, like, these are really cool powers. Jesus is super cool. Like, let's talk about how amazing these miracles are. But there's a very jolting point that Mark is making. Right? Not to show that Jesus is some kind of Superman. That this guy, Jesus, has come to reclaim what is his. He, he is a king who has come to reclaim his kingdom. And his kingdom is the entire world. It's all of creation. Over and over again, in whatever gospel you're reading, Jesus demonstrates an indestructibility against the forces of evil and darkness. Nothing can stand against him. Nothing can stand before him. He is a conquering king. Nothing is too much for him. Except in Mark 8, right in the middle of this gospel, all that comes to a grinding halt. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Well, now... Jesus is out of his mind. Peter thinks so. Peter Peter tries to take Jesus aside and talk some sense back into him. Look, this is not this is not part of the plan. You're doing a good job. Just keep it going. I mean, this would be like General Patton. You guys know General Patton from World War II, decorated general, led you know the Allied forces in the victory. It'd be like him securing the victory and then being like, "Okay, guys, in order to win this war, I've got to go give myself to Hitler." No, no, General Patton, <laughs> that's not. How this has been going, everything's been going great. This is a bad idea. Let's lock you up and talk you out of this, all right? Jesus adds something very interesting in relation to that declaration. So not only is he going to go and suffer and die, he also says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus is connecting in some way a a very shameful death with His kingdom. All of this comes together as we come to our, our current chapter. Chapter 15. 
in the precise moment when Jesus dies on the cross in verse 39. If you have your Bibles, look at chapter 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. That might not seem like much, but it is the first time a human declares the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, and it happens when Jesus is dead. In other words, the death of Jesus on the cross is not his defeat, but the culmination of his mission and the climactic revelation as his identity as the Son of God and the reigning King. Not when he's subduing demons, not when he's healing people, not when he's telling storms to go away, it's when he's dead. So when we read this passage in Mark and we're told that Joseph is looking for the kingdom of God, he's seeing it. As he takes that body down to bury it, he is seeing the kingdom of God. The death of its king is not its ending, but its beginning. In all of this, Mark kind of goes out of the way to show us it's pointedly happening under the watchful eye of Pilate. Pilate represents all earthly kingdoms and all earthly nations. At the end of the day, Pilate, Caesar, whoever, only looks after themselves and they always use their authority to punish the innocent. This is true of every earthly kingdom. No human kingdom is exempt from this. Alright, the, the Roman Catholic Empire, whatever you want to call it, had the Crusades. And the Crusades were nothing but a vast pillaging injustice. Right? The UK and its subjugation and, and continental global racism and its empire. The US our history of slavery and racism. No human kingdom, hear me, is exempt from its abuse of authority to punish the innocent. Pilate, in this instance, is watching his own work play out before him. His own work of having killed Jesus. And he's, in the same instance, he's watching judgment on his own kingdom. In other words, the death of Jesus signifies the death and fall of Pilate and all Pilates throughout history. Judgment is coming. And listen, if there is no judgment, none of this matters. If there is no judgment, we don't have any hope that any injustice is going to be corrected. But if, if there is judgment, everything matters. By virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection, he not only inaugurates his own kingdom, but he puts all other kingdoms on hospice. And why is this such a great promise? Because this is as good as it gets. If this is all there is. Increasing division and hostility. War. I mean, threats of, of nuclear war, mass shootings. I'm reading a book on Sandy Hook. An absolutely tragic shooting. Authoritarianism. But because of the resurrection, the promise for us is the same as it was for Joseph. 
the promise of looking for a new king. A kingdom that will undo all the oppression and injustice of the world and usher in a kingdom of righteousness and peace. That's our hope for ourselves. Hope for Christians in places like China and North Korea and Russia. Hope for Ukrainians. That all of these earthly kingdoms will be judged by the righteous. The second promise of the resurrection is the end of toil. The end of toil. Just like we can easily skate by, uh, skate by words of the kingdom in this passage, we can easily miss another emphasis of Mark here. The Sabbath. The day before the Sabbath, Joseph goes to bury the body of Jesus. After the Sabbath, the women go to the tomb. We, we want to pause and, and think, how this passage relates to the Sabbath. Of course, the first question we need to answer is, what in the world is the Sabbath? The Sabbath, first of all, was a command uh, given to the Israelites by Moses to rest on the seventh day. And, And it centers around this idea that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Therefore, He commands the Israelites to rest on the Sabbath day. Which means that the Sabbath wasn't just a day for physical rest, although that's part of it, but it was a day of spiritual rest. To reorient who you are around who is in charge of all of this and who sustains it all and who provides everything. That that was the point of, of the Sabbath. It was an invitation to rest and to trust in the hands of a loving Creator. In fact... Uh, the Israelites were also supposed to celebrate the year of Jubilee where they don't do a, a, a lick of work for a whole year. I don't know, even know if they ever did that. I don't know of any place in the Bible where it says they celebrated the year of Jubilee. It would be like if Bass Pro right, took a day each week so that all the employees could remember everything that they have is from the loving hands of Johnny Morris. Your bow, your bait. Except the Sabbath is about God. And to not trust Him is is to reject Him. You're saying you're not good. You don't provide. It's a problem with the Israelites. And and believe it or not, guess what? Mark has written a lot about the Sabbath too. Jesus Himself, earliest chapter 2, declares Himself, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. That's quite the claim. And then he gets into these controversies and arguments with Pharisees and religious leaders because he heals people on the Sabbath. And all of that is to show, right, what Mark is showing is that that true Sabbath is now found in the coming of Jesus, right? It's, it's no longer found on just a day, it's found in Jesus. And, and one passage in particular exemplifies this, it, it it follows shortly after um, these confrontations in chapter 2 and 3. And it's when Jesus is going to heal somebody's daughter. And there's large crowds all around him. They're pushing him, jostling him. When all of a sudden, there's a woman who desperately wants to get to Jesus. Why? Mark tells us that she 
had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Have you ever felt like that? That's toil. To try and try and spend and spend only for the problem to deepen. Disease, sickness, divorce, pain. Toil. You pray and you pray. You still feel empty. Let me tell you, if you've never known toil, if you've never been at the end of your rope, then you'll never come to Jesus. That feeling of futility, hopelessness, trying again and again. The women in chapter 15 face toil too. There's this toil of of taking care of a dead body. And by toil, I mean just the futility of it. Have you ever been in a room where it's someone you love that you see for the first time or you're with somebody else and they see someone in a a casket for the first time? These women lost everything when they lost Jesus. And it's toil. And then there's this actual physical toil that we are presented presented with here. Who will roll away the stone for us? But what these women find is that all the toil had already been done for them. Not only has the stone already been rolled away, but the body. The body hasn't simply already been dressed and anointed for them. It has been made new. And so the resurrection, what Mark is presenting here, is the promise to the end of toil. It is the end of trying over and over again only to fail. It's the end of trying by our works to get right with God. It's the ability to say, I have no toil left. I have no fight left. Only brokenness and, 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 and failure. And to receive, the stone has been rolled away for you already. St. Augustine, a Christian from the 4th century, once wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless. Until it rests in you. Rest. A true. Lasting. Rest. Is found in Jesus. A Jesus who is alive. It's the end of. Toil. And this is directly tied to the last promise of the resurrection the end of despair okay i don't know how many of you had heard about encanto or turning red but how many of you know the kardashians nothing like an easter and the kardashians am i right uh i don't know if you know the kardashians but they're famous for pretty much nothing uh there's seven of them or something i i think there are seven i don't know how i know that but there are seven anyway uh, all the Kardashians seem to have one goal in mind. The mom, the daughters, whatever. They all seem to have one goal, and that's to preserve as much youth and to enhance as much beauty as possible. 
And like, listen, if you look at like pictures of what they look like before and after, or like even like when they're just out with no makeup, like it's crazy. Like they don't even look like the same person. It it's unbelievable. Okay, I I don't want to talk bad about it. It's it's unbelievable. All right, it's just you just have, this is what Ripley's believe it or not. Okay, that's the situation here. And and the Kardashians, they're just microcosms of our culture. I, I'm poking fun of them, but our culture is this way too. The, the younger you look depends on how much money you can spend to be that way. All right? Nothing wrong with exercise, nothing wrong with makeup, beauty products. I'm fine with all that stuff. But, right, it's generally to the younger you try to look, the more money you, you throw at it. Okay? Death is the opposite of beauty. Death is actually the end of beauty. So it's really interesting that here at the end of Mark, we have two diametrically opposite pictures. A tomb, which represents death and decay, and a young man. Mark doesn't just tell us it's an angel. He goes out of his way to specifically tell us that it's a youth. It's a kid. Mark is the only one who mentions this detail for us. Mark is making some kind of connection between youthfulness and the resurrection. Many of the major characters of the Bible are known for being old. Right? Abraham was old. His wife Sarah was barren. Moses was old when God called him. Joshua was old when he took the reins. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, here in, in these Gospels, the parents of John the Baptist, they were old. And nothing quite fetches despair like feeling the effects of old age, deteriorating bodies, and decay. Am I right, Jed? That's why we fight it so much. Listen, I know I'm only 31, but I get some of my worst injuries from sleeping. Back pain, like somehow I injured my hand. While I was sleeping, I woke up with this, this crazy hand injury. How does that happen? But this appearance of a young man to announce the resurrection of Jesus tells us something important. That our God is a God of life and vigor. And that we are invited into that life and vigor, vigor despite death and decay. Psalm 103, arguably one of the most beautiful of psalms, tells us that bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And he, he lists all these benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And the final one, he says, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What does Isaiah say? Those who follow him will walk and not be faint. What this means is not that we should try our best to be young or to act young. But the point is that never-ending life happens in God. This is exactly why the angel tells them Go tell his disciples, Jesus' disciples, and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. 
Listen, I don't know if you know the story, but the disciples had all failed Jesus. One of them was so desperate to get away from Jesus, he runs away naked. Like that's how desperate he was, he was to get away from Jesus. And, and none more than Peter. Peter denies and rejects Jesus, not just once, but three times. That's, I know that's a famous story, but I mean, that's three times he rejects Jesus and denies him. But in Christ, God is giving Peter and his disciples not a second chance, but a new life. How wonderful would it have been to hear your life isn't over, Peter. In fact, it has just begun. The grace that's given to these disciples and to Peter renews them with fresh life and vigor. And these women flee with the same sense of excitement and life. These women, the disciples, Peter, are all given a renewed purpose. Grace infuses them with hope and meaning. That's what life is about. It's about having hope and purpose. And Jesus gives us that purpose. Seeking youth, trying to maintain beauty, fighting old age will all lead to despair if that's what we cling to. Find our purpose in anything else and it will only lead to emptiness. It is in Christ that life is found because He renews us and gives us new purpose. It is not trying to find ourselves, but to be found in Christ. The resurrection is the promise of an end to despair. This is the story. The story to which all other stories point. We don't have the answers. We don't have all the answers, okay? Christians are not the ones with all the answers. The Bible doesn't even give us all the answers we want. And I'm sorry if you are in here and you've been offended by Christian arrogance to act like we have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. We point to someone who is the answer. We point to that guy. I don't have all the answers. He does. The living Lord, Jesus Christ. And do you ever lay your head down wondering how it will ever get better? Do you despair over failures or sins or brokenness? Over loneliness? Do you weep over another bottle or another needle? All other stories have promises that will fail you. This is the one story where the promise does not fail. Flee to Jesus. Run to Him. Touch the edge of His cloak with the weakest, slimmer of faith. And He will not turn you away. Will not cast you aside. 
you can come to Him today because He is alive today. He is and delights to be the living Savior of sinners. And, and now is the time to respond to Him. When we, when we get up to sing, now is the time to respond to Him. You don't have to sing. You don't have to stay in this room. Have you been living in sin? Now is the time to repent. Are you struggling in a marriage or a relationship? Now is the time to cry to Him. Do you have addictions? Now is the time to collapse on Him. Are you looking for meaning, purpose? Now is the time to follow Him. Everything you are looking for is found in Jesus. In Jesus are unsearchable riches. If only you will cry out to Him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't have answers, but we just fall at Your feet knowing that You are the answer. And, and Lord, I don't want to act like You make our problems go away, that You answer all of our questions, but You are good. You have promised good to us. You are faithful to us. You redeem us. You hold us. You weep with us. Hold us. You are with us. You do not cast us away. You do not reject us. Instead, you come and you live among us. You die for our failures and sins and you live eternally as the one to whom we can cry. The one we can bank all of our hope upon. And Lord, you are the one who makes these promises. It's not on us to see these things. It's on, through. It's on you to see these things through. So seethe and through, Lord Jesus. Help us to find our life, our hope, our meaning, righteousness in you. We praise you as the living Savior of sinners who hears us and answers us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.